Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 198 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Jordan Formula One team episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that back in the 1998 Formula One season, the Jordan Formula One team, uh, which is called Jordan basically because it's named after... um, the Irish businessman and founder, Eddie Jordan, uh, their car was called Jordan 198. With that little bit of Formula One racing team knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident sunny employee, Tim! <laughs> who, of course, we went on this whole discussion before the show about accidentally muting the microphones and talking while thinking that the voice is being picked up by the mi- microphone. I go and fail right off the bat. Failure, Tim. So, Matt, are you a fan of Formula One? Are you into racing at all? Uh, I am always trying to race to my personal best in masturbation completion. How about automotive racing? <laughs> you mean doing it in an automobile? Hmm. I've never tried. No. You've never uh, masturbated <laughs> in a in an automobile? Golly gee. Is that something to add to the bucket list? In a bucket seat? But um right. you deliver pizzas. Surely you have downtime. <laughs> Surely there are people you don't like. Did you need an extra sauce cup? <laughs> we, can, we can provide an extra can sauce Can I have cup. five ranch no, cups? I, oh, shit. I could improvise. Exactly. Um, it's actually the icing. It would be the uh, oh, icing cups. Okay. No, uh, seriously, though, I, um, I'm not really into much of the racing. I can appreciate it for the strategy in terms of when you're actually there trying to um, – you know, maximize your fuel versus drift, uh, getting around the cars, trying to time your laps and also your pit stops and stuff. I mean, it's, it's, I can certainly understand the appeal of it, but in terms of just being a spectator, I don't, I just, you know, I don't care. Um, if you get a well-crafted movie about it, like when we were watching, uh, last year, um, Oh, Rush. Rush. Yeah. You know, that's that that like makes... two years ago, I think. Was it? Goodness gracious. So, yeah, when you get a well-crafted movie like Rush, okay, sure, I can certainly watch a movie about it. But um, I just, for me, it's like I don't really want to see him turn left all day. That's thanks, but no thanks. May I I recommend a documentary to you? You, of course, can recommend anything you would like, sir. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but uh, it's about Paul Newman and his racing career, and the documentary is strictly about his racing career, and it's directed by, I'm blanking on his name, is it Adam Carolla? He was on The Man Show with Kimmel? Sure, yes, Adam Carolla. Adam Carolla? Yeah, it's directed by him, and it's actually a really good documentary. A lot of stuff uh, I didn't I didn't really know about him. I mean, I knew that Lasseter cast Paul Newman as Doc Hudson, right? Mm-hmm. In Cars, because Paul Newman was a a racing aficionado, but I really didn't know the extent of how much he actually raced, up until his death, especially. 
So do check it out. Sweet. Well, thank you for the heads up. But at any rate, um, yeah, now that we've kind of gone sidetracked on racing, what else is there? How are you? I'm good. I, I can't complain. But how are how are you? What have you been up to this past week? Honestly, I am so swamped with school. Um, I barely have enough time to watch the movies for the show. So it's really just been that. I actually had to talk to one of my professors tonight about pushing part of one of my projects back a week. Um just so that I can get time to do it. So that's really all it is, man. Just it's so much reading, so much reading. Oh God, so much reading. Do you have a, a college course you hate? I don't hate them. Actually, I, I find myself really enjoying all the classes. It's just the workload is fucking ridiculous and it's kind of stressing me out, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll, we shall press on. We shall, we shall get through. So I did a quick search because I was going to ask you of, uh, you know, like what you think about certain classes. And I was going to make up class names and do that whole spiel like I did, I think, last year. But while looking up some of these goofy class names, I realized there is a list of real college courses that are (laughs) offered in the United States. One is it's the Economic Collapse is this website. So I guess it's fitting. What if Harry Potter is real? That is taught at the Appalachian State University. Another course, God, (laughs) Sex, Chocolate, Desire, and the Spiritual Path, UC San Diego. Um, And and Matt, you tell me where this course is being taught at. Gaga for Gaga, Sex, Gender, and Identity. I'm going to go with Gonzaga University in Washington State. No, 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 no. The University of Virginia. Oh, holy moly. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of these. Uh, there's... <laughs> you might like this one. Arguing with Judge Judy at UC Berkeley. <laughs> okay, now let me ask you a question. Are these, are these actual survey courses? Um, are they part of the actual... A curriculum that will get you a grade or, or like that will contribute i'm sorry that will contribute to your degree plan or are these just simple um like pickup courses where you are uh and i can't think of the name of it off the top of my head but basically it's it, and it, like an enrichment class like an enrichment class you can take it for a grade um and and um and you can certainly take it for the experience but it won't really contribute to your degree plan it's more or less just kind of a stupid elective and maybe even not then yeah i i think it's a seminar it looks like the seminar this is what it says under arguing with the judge judy course the seminar will be concerned with identifying such apparently popular logical fallacies on judge judy and not well actually and the people's court and discussing why such strategies are so widespread it is not a course about law or legal reasoning and they put that all in bold Students who are interested in logic, argument, TV, and American popular culture will probably be interested in this course. I emphasize that this is not about the application of law or the operations of the court system in general. Well, that kind of sums up all of court TV, does it not? Yes. Especially since they're not even real judges. (laughs) They might have been at some point in their lives or careers, uh, but when they're on those TV shows, basically you have uh, showed up for arbitration. 
and your arbiter is this legal representative. And they are not a judge. They cannot fine you. They cannot enforce. There is no way to be held in contempt. There, nothing. Um, it's all for show. And because it is a show, you're... Uh, like if you lose your case, that's just taken out of the fund that would pay everybody all the way around anyway. So you still get paid to show up, even if you lose. Do you often ask yourself, do clothes make the man or the woman? Do men make better women or women better men? Is gender a costume we put on and take off? Are we really all always in drag? Does gender bending lead to transcendence or chaos? These questions will be answered and taught if you take interrogating gender centuries of dramatic cross-dressing at Swarthmore College. Wow. Well, see, what you should have done was you should have saved this little article, or maybe even the remnants of this article, and then combined them with, like, made-up stuff, and then had me guess which one was the real class. Well, uh, that, I think that'll be pretty easy, because I just kind of <laughs> jumped over to this other website where at Skidmore College, you're, <laughs> there's a course called The Sociology of Miley Cyrus, Race, Class, Gender, and Media. <laughs> Wow. I remember a few years back, uh, and I want to say it was at, might have been Berkeley, it might have been UCLA, I can't remember. Um, but they they actually did like the films of Keanu Reeves. It was a one semester class. Really? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean. And it was, for, but, and it was for a film degree. Yeah. Um, so I, I could see how that might go somewhat into that aspect, but yeah. But what what are the really good ones he's been in? What's Eating Gilbert? No, he wasn't in that one. <laughs> um, huh. uh, golly gee, Point Break. I'm learning what? how to serve. What's the one where he's? I think he's. Is he gay or is is his brother gay? And they're on a cross country road trip or something like that. I can't remember. <laughs> was it The Matrix? No, no, it wasn't The Matrix. My own private Idaho? Yes, 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 yes. That I think that's it. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, I think we have definitely run this subject into the ground, <laughs> even in its tangential <laughs> form. So um, perhaps we should move over to the old mail sack. Rip that sucker open. <laughs> All right. Looking in here, of course, going to the show at slscast.com, which is where you can send us emails to if you are so inclined. Uh, we actually do not have any emails this week, but we do have a new Twitter follower. And that Twitter follower is Nick Salim, or Salim, Salim, I imagine, S A L I M. So I apologize if I have ruined that pronunciation. Uh, and this, of course, is at Nick Salim1. And we would like to thank you, sir, for following our show. You, of course, can follow us to show, follow our show on Twitter by following at the SLS cast. So that takes care of that. We have no other emails or Twitter followers to speak of, sir. Would you like to move into the news? We must move on to the news. All right, here we go, folks. It's the news. Hey. 
And first up for me, coming from TV3.ie or expose.ie, let's see here. And it's from the Entertainment News Department. It says here that Oscar winner and cancer survivor Kathy Bates is to be honored with the 2,589th star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Shirley MacLaine will be among the guests uh, saluting the Misery actress when she unveils her plaque on Hollywood Boulevard in front of the fabled Chinese theater on... uh, Actually, today! Oh, look! Well, today's the 20th of September, and it happened today. That's pretty cool. Uh, News of Kathy's latest honor comes just days after she fought back proud tears as she hit the stage as part of the stand-up to cancer telecast in the U.S. last Friday, uh, on Friday night, the 9th of september uh let's see here bates is currently filming the sixth season of american horror story and she's also in pre-production on netflix's new series disjointed a pot-themed workplace comedy created by chuck lorry so that's pretty cool um let's see here i got one other quick one here for you uh it's a follow-up to a previous story that i covered from variety.com by way of gene mattis or madhouse Cinemark drops $700,000 claim against Aurora Theater shooting victims ending legal battle. Putting an end to a painful legal episode, Cinemark today, uh, and by the way, today was last week, (laughs) dropped a claim of $700,000 in legal costs against victims of the Aurora, Colorado Theater shooting. The victims sued the theater chain, contending it did not do enough to prevent the 2012 shooting at the midnight screening of The Dark Knight Rises, which left 12 people dead and wounded 70 others. But in May, a jury in state court sided with Cinemark, whose attorneys argued that the shooting could not have been foreseen or prevented. Under Colorado law, the cinema chain was entitled to recoup costs from the victims, which it pegged at $700,000. Earlier this month, Cinemark reached an agreement with all but four of the plaintiffs to drop the costs in exchange for an agreement not to pursue an appeal. Today, the remaining four holdouts also agreed not to appeal, and Cinemark dropped the claim for legal fees. Um, So, just over those two articles there, Tim. Questions, comments, concerns, anything you'd like to say? I thought that was kind of a nice thing that Cinemark was like, look, guys, if you don't appeal the decision again, we will not pursue, you know, enforcement of this $700,000. Um, I think that is definitely a nice class act, puts an end to everything, um, and lets and just kind of lets it rest finally. And then, of course, on the other aspect there with Kathy Bates, I think that's pretty cool. I didn't realize there were already almost 2,600 stars. That walk must take forever now. And I had no idea that... Kathy Bates hasn't already received a star. I figure she would have gotten one like in the mid '90s or something like that. Well, that was when she came to prominence. So I think surely after like Misery and I know, but that's what I'm saying. That's when she came to prominence. Misery, Fried Green Tomatoes, and then from there, I I mean, it's kind of like now she's maintained that gravitas. I don't know, but like if what's her name from Wheel of Fortune was able to get her star years ago. (laughs) Kathy Bates certainly should have beforehand. But it, um, I guess with the Cinemark thing, it in a way, I think it helped. It, it helped them come to that decision due to all the negative press that I think would have followed if they went, if they went ahead with a lawsuit. 
Yeah, that wouldn't. I mean, that that just would not have worked out well for them. And I, I think in the back of their minds, somebody in their PR department was just like, "Hold on a second, we don't want to." I mean, we're already not making a lot of money for movies from ticket sales. As it is, the last thing we want to do is have people striking and quitting and and making blood packs to never attend a Cinemark theater ever. So. Yeah, I think it kind of helped with all the media attention and whatnot in the favor of the victims and their families and whatnot. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's I can definitely see that perspective as well. So right on, man. Uh, And just on a side note, Vanna White first appeared on The Price is Right, on The Price is Right in 1980. And she didn't get her star until 2006. So she spent 26 years in the biz before she got her Hollywood Walk of Fame star. And so we just had to wait 10 more years for Kathy Bates because she didn't really pop on the scene till like 1991. But it's Kathy Bates! <laughs> oh well. Whatever. <laughs> it's not a big what deal. They both what got it. It I don't. Exactly. I don't have mine. Where's Where's the SLS cast star? Oh, I have no idea. I'm you sure know, it's forthcoming. If That's you have enough. an extra, I think like ten thousand or eleven thousand bucks, you can pretty much buy your own star. So, oh, re- so well, really, just, I'm heading to Vegas right now. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's also why if you go to Palm Springs, they have the Palm Springs Walk of Fame, uh-huh. and if you go to all these other little towns in the LA area and uh uh you know like kind of ritzy popular places they have these walk of fames and they're more so awarded to the people who they feel best you know deserves it so you go to like a fashiony type of area part of town or town or city or whatever and so they have like a fashion walk of fame and so i i when i, I every time when i hear of the hollywood walk of fame i just could i can't help and especially whenever I walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard and I look at the stars. And as a side note, a lot of people don't realize this, that since they, they've actually run out of room some time ago. So since the sidewalk is a pretty good-sized sidewalk, now they're putting stars like Caddy Corner from one another yeah, on, on the same sidewalk. Say, right, yeah, it's kind of like interesting, interesting. But yeah, um, but even even as I walk down, I see certain people who got stars, and it's just kind of like, oh my god. God, are you kidding me? This person has a star. And then you have somebody like Benny Hill or Buster Keaton. Their star's all cracked and falling apart, and they're sitting in front of like a bong shop or something like that. Well, let's see here. Okay, so what we need at this point, uh, we need to have, uh, um, let's see. We, We meet the five years experience in the category for which we are nominated which I guess would be technically radio. Um, So we meet that. And it says anyone, including fans, can nominate anyone active in the field of entertainment as long as the nominee or his or her management approves the nomination. So we just have to send our letter of agreement with our application. And then we have to have five years of experience in the category, which we do. And then we also have to have a history of charitable contributions. Now, I don't know about you, but I think that I donate to the Red Bucket uh, at the Salvation Army every year. So, see, that's a history of charitable Taxes? Does taxes count? Paying taxes? You know, I donate to the presidential campaign and the election fund on my taxes. Does that count, right? 
Um, so I think that we could do it. And then if we're selected, we're selected, we then have to come up with $30,000. Oh, it, that's like the footnote. Like, <laughs> oh, you, you, you had me going, and all this time I thought, eh, $11,000 is reasonable. You know, save a couple bucks here or there. But then sure. we get into, like, car territory. Do I want to buy two cars, or do I want a star on the Hollywood Walk? Where it could end up anywhere. The star is forever, though. The star is forever. But it could end up anywhere. You could be on the doorstep of, like, swingers or something like that. Okay, do you think that that would not be appropriate for us, though? I think that would be fantastic for us to be in front of a swingers club. Hey mom, I really mom, please take me to go see the SLS cast star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Oh, where, where are the ad? I don't find them on the Star Walk. Oh, they're in front of the anal bead shop. Well, you know, I think that if nothing else would prove that people you could just walk and go, dear God, they will literally give anyone a star. Fame. <laughs> this would do it. This would absolutely do it. Oh, yeah, amazing. Okay. So, um, did we even get through your first story yet? No, no we still haven't got. We did. No, we didn't. No. No. Oh my God! Let's go ahead and get you on, sir. Go. <laughs> Wait, you're gonna get me what? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, you need help with the? Uh, or I mean, with the? Hang on, I'll cut that out. You need help. <laughs> you need help with that? Uh, that extra. With the extra icing collection? Yeah, with the extra icing collection. <laughs> Never mind. It's entirely possible. You didn't come on out here, big boy. I'll give you a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, my up. piece of news after we just uh, said that stuff is to tell you about a passing that happened. The actress who is best known for playing Liesl Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, her name is Charmian, or Carmian, C-H-A-R-M-I-A-N, Carr, passed away at the age of 73. This is from thehollywoodreporter.com. Charmian Carr, known for her role as Leslie Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, has died. She was 73. Carr's family announced she died Saturday in Woodland Hills of complications from a rare form of dementia. Carr was born on December 27th, 1942, in Chicago. She was 21 when she sang the popular 16 Going on 17 as the oldest Von Trapp sister in the Academy Award-winning Sound of Music in 1965, starring Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer. Carr starred in only one other film, appearing opposite Anthony Perkins in Evening Primrose. After she left the movie business, Carr started a design company called Charmian Carr Design, which attracted Michael Jackson as a client. Carr co-authored two books, Forever Lies, in 2000, which chronicled her experience filming Sound of Music and Letters to Lies from 2001, which was inspired by the thousands of pieces of fan mail she received over the years. So R.I.P. Charmian Carr, who played Liesl... Von Trapp in Sound of Music. Next up, uh, you Mad Max Fury Road fans out there, I'm sure this is going to be both either a surprise if you haven't heard about it already, or just something mildly interesting for non-Mad Max Fury Road fans. I don't know. But some months ago, or actually maybe about a year ago, when George Miller was on the press circuit, doing the press circuit for Fury Road when it was in theaters and whatnot... 
Um, he hinted at a what he called the Black and Chrome edition of Mad Max Fury Road. And the Black and Chrome edition is this really cool black and white version of the movie. And he said that really this is the version he wanted to release. And of course, the studio Warner Brothers would not release a big-budget, action-packed film like Mad Max in black and white. To be honest, I really don't know how well the movie would have done if it was in black and white or if it still would have made the same amount of money. But when it came down to it, it wasn't about the color grade of the film. It was about the action and the momentum. But I'm really looking forward to this. From ComingSoon.net, Mad Max High Octane Collection announced with black and chrome edition. Uh, Mad Max fans will have something to put atop their holiday gift lists with the Mad Max High Octane Collection, debuting December 6th from Warner Brothers Home Entertainment. All four films from visionary director George Miller's blockbuster sci-fi franchise, Mad Max, Mad Max 2, Road Warrior, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and Mad Max Fury Road, now with Tom Hardy as Max Rokitansky, are together in one collection. The Mad Max High Octane Collection is available to own in both Blu-ray, $79.99 SRP, and DVD, $54.97 SRP, versions. Both collections include the four films and five hours of bonus content, including the visually stunning Mad Max Fury Road Black and Chrome Edition. The Blu-ray collection will also include a 4K Ultra HD version and a UV digital copy of Mad Max Fury Road. The Mad Max Fury Road Black and Chrome Edition will also be available on Blu-ray for 30 bucks in a two-film collection, including the theatrical version of the film and a special introduction by George Miller describing his vision. And the article goes on from there, kind of explaining in more detail what special features will be a part of the Black and Chrome edition. So I am definitely going to pick this up. I've been waiting for a, uh, not a bundle of all the movies, since I already own the first two. I really don't want to double dip. But I've been waiting to purchase Fury Road until they came out with a more of a a definitive release, a home video release for it. And I think this is going to be it. Uh, There's definitely more special features than the original Blu-ray release. uh, So that will be something to look forward to on top of the cool black and chrome edition of the film. And to round out my third piece of first round of news, if that makes sense there, from thecut.com. Priyanka Chopra is the celebrity feminist we need, written by Anna Silman. And the reason why I brought up this interview is because this actress, Priyanka Chopra, wants to see James Bond, the character of James Bond played by a woman. Um, When she was asked, according to this article, to comment on her earlier remarks about wanting to play a female Bond, Chopra clarifies that, much like Ava DuVernay, the phrase diversity gives her pause. She says, quote, I know everything is about diversity right now, but I think it should be about humanity. It's 2016. It's so easy to separate ourselves and become smaller and smaller pieces of humanity. I don't like the phrase woman of color. I feel like that puts women in a box. I'm a woman, whether I'm white, black, brown, green, blue, or pink, whatever. I think we need to start looking beyond that. End her quote. A female Bond, says Chopra, would, quote, be a big win for women, period, end quote. Just don't call her Jane Bond. Quote, not Jane. She should be James Bond, and she should be able to sell it. Why not? End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about that? Do you think 
I, I know this is kind of getting this is a this is touchy territory, especially since we're two dudes doing a movie podcast. I mean, maybe we're not in the right position to comment on this, but since it is. And the reason why I did bring it up is because it does touch on James Bond, and I can see something like this coming into uh, coming into play in the near future. If not, it actually coming into fruition, the discussion happening, and the discussion actually pushing for it to come to fruition. I don't know. But I can see the talk will happen eventually, not just with James Bond, but with other properties as well, maybe even Mad Max. But do you think it would be possible, and it should happen, for James Bond to be a female? To be played by a woman, I should say. I, I don't think that it should be... Um, I, I do not believe that it should be specifically James Bond. Now, that's not because I think that women don't deserve it or don't uh, belong or anything. No, that's, that's none of that. None of that. None of that. Um, I think what needs to happen is that we need a new Ripley. Okay? We need an original, even if it's just a twist on the spy theme, um, that gives it something with its own legs and its own base with which to stand. Because you, by directly trying to take on that mantle, you then take everything that comes with it. And it's not fair to put a woman, um, a, a female character like that into that male role that's been defined for the last 50 years, basically, because it's almost like setting the character up to fail. Now, it's not to say that it can't be done, um, I'm not, or that it uh, shouldn't happen on matter of principle or gender equality or anything like that. I just think that um, it becomes its own political statement, and I think that it becomes uh, its own twist on something that doesn't need to be. What we need is we need a new badass female role. We need a new Ray. We need a new, um, oh gosh, what's Linda Hamilton's character's name? Sarah Connor. Sarah, thank you. Oh my God. We need a new Sarah Connor. We need a new Ripley. Uh so that we can have a female, an amazing, badass female that people can get behind, even within the same genre, that has none of the baggage. That's how you prove it can compete. Because when, when you see... And the vast majority of people who are fans of the Alien franchise, come on... They're guys. The vast majority of Star Wars fans are guys. The vast majority of Terminator fans are guys. And yet, in each instance, especially now with Star Trek, I'm sorry, not with Star Trek, but with Star Wars, you've got amazing strong women with which to pull characters from. And you're not seeing anyone clamoring for less of that. So when you see people like Schalkberg, I mean, come on, and don't call her Jane Bond... What the fuck is that even supposed to mean? I mean, that's just completely, look, if you want to redefine the role, then redefine the role. But I think your best bet is to give it something that has its own legs and not necessarily, um, and not necessarily take something for the sake of taking something. As much fun as it was to see, uh, that idea of Gillian Anderson or whatever that we had looked at a few months back, um... I, I just think that it needs its own independent 
uh, character. I guess if that makes me an evil man, then okay. No, I think it, you know, you explained it the right way, the correct way. Because, I mean, like, James Bond has been around for so long, and it has been identified, you know, the character has been identified as a man. And you don't want to, I mean, it's kind of like what you were saying, you don't want to make a political, you don't want it to feel like a statement by changing things up. And I do agree, I think there definitely needs to be more roles, more powerful, strong roles, like Ripley and Sarah Connor. And I think there is great potential. I mean, look at, like, Jennifer Lawrence. Look at the type of movies that she does, you know. she. I think she's trying to do she, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, she's definitely all over the place in that, in that kind of an aspect. And honestly, um, even when we say, oh, it's identified as a man. I mean, think about the potential, especially in the spy world, for a gender-neutral character. Are you kidding me? Like, someone who literally could slip in and out either way. In a badass way, like at one point you literally like, holy crap, that's a convincing woman. And then you realize, oh my God. And then yet at the same time, they could be a convincing man. I mean, the spy genre, just just awash with ideas for that. Now, if Kathy Bates wants to play James Bond, (laughs) I am all over that. (laughs) Well, then they would have to postpone her star until they could put it next to Daniel Craig. (laughs) Uh, anyways so yeah that's it i mean it's definitely an interesting idea i would i would really and truly love to hear what our listeners have to say about that so you should email us uh to the show at slscast.com or hit us up on twitter at the slscast let us know what you think about that what else you got Okay, is it my turn again (laughs) (laughs) uh all right i'm just going to go ahead and uh do this one last piece since we've ended up talking about a whole lot of stuff here. Uh, from businessinsider.com by way of Emma Powell and the Evening Standard. Jonah Hill canceled all further interviews after ridiculing from French, quote, local weather girl, end quote. Yes, you heard that right. Jonah Hill has a string of comedy films to his name, but the actor failed to see the funny side when he became the butt of a joke. Hill, 32, was ridiculed during an appearance on France's Le Grand Journal to promote his latest film, War Dogs, when host Ornelia Fleury uh, described her perfect sexual fantasy, which pointedly excluded the actor. Fleury said, and I quote, It's when I saw you get sodomized by a three-meter-tall demon in This is the End that I told myself, that is the man of my dreams, end quote. An unimpressed Hill replied, quote, and you? I hear you get sodomized pretty often, end quote. Fleury continued, quote, my sexual fantasy would be that we would meet up in a hotel room at night. We would chat, and you'd make me laugh. You'd make me laugh a lot. And then, all of a sudden, you'd bring your friends Leo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, and then you would leave. End quote. Clearly irritated by the remark, Hill replied, quote, I'm glad I came on here to be mocked by a local weather girl. End quote. Uh, Hill went on to cancel the rest of his interviews, according to French news outlet BFM TV. Um, let's see here. So, now to be clear, I'm going to go ahead and read. Uh, let's see here. Yes, I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of the article here. It's a pretty brief article, but it's important here because Fleury uh, actually apologized. She says, quote, 
Jonah, the problem is that for 10 years, I have lived with you through your films. In fact, Jonah, I really had the impression that I knew you. So last Friday, I thought I was just messing around with a friend. But the reality is that we are not friends. No, the reality is that you have two Oscar nominations and I have two videos on my YouTube account. You have made films with Scorsese and Tarantino and me, I have made an advert for Spontex, a company that specializes in making cleaning, cleaning products, end quote. Um, so here's the thing, is that what she said really was kind of out of line um but it truly came from a place of comedic love as it were she has done nothing but watch his movies and see his interviews and see how he acts with his friends and stuff and she like any well not any but like a lot of fans inadvertently imposes the persona of characters that an actor plays as the persona of that person. And so she just thought she was kidding around with someone who could take the joke and would understand the joke as someone as he might have done with his friends. But, but as she pointed out, they're not friends. So here he is. And there's a language barrier. Like if you actually watch the video, he's got, he's clearly got an earpiece and he's trying and he's, so it's already staggered because he's trying to listen to an interpreter, um, while this is going on. And then to make it even worse is like all the other people on the panel literally look at him with pity, like with pity. So, I mean, I can understand why he was pissed, but she really did. I mean, you can't go much more to the floor of the mat you know as an apology than say look you've got two oscar nominations i have two youtube videos she knows she fucked up so i'm kind of hoping that he'll accept the apology um as the as of the time that i'm reading this the business insider had reached out for um as the standard online has contacted a representative for hill for comment there is no update to that so i don't know anything beyond that but what do you think tim uh do you think he had a right to be pissed? Uh, should he accept the apology? Does it matter? Do you care? Uh, I, th I can see the language barrier posing an issue. Now, I've never heard an apology quite like that from a, you know, a media person. And I think I would accept the apology for sure. Because, I mean, look at the type of movies that Jonah Hill has made uh, and still kind of makes. You know, he plays that type of character that says all the crazy, goofy, raunchy things, and he surrounds himself with actors and friends like James Franco and Seth Rogen who curse at each other, make fun of each other, make really crass remarks in front of each other. It kind of works. I, I think we because we watch all that stuff, he's participated in a number of movies like that. I mean, just look at Superbad. We, we just kind of forget about the barrier of, you know, movie characters and reality. So, I, I mean, I think it's an honest mistake for, I mean, I, me personally, I would never do anything like that unless I knew the person, let alone do it on national TV, whatever TV station it was on. But I, I do think he should accept the apology, though. Cool beans. All right. Well, that's my news. I'm out. What do you got for us, sir? So I'll just end my news and the news in general with this io9.gizmodo.com article. Disney does brownface in Mona costume misfire. This is written by Beth Elderkin, and it says this. 
Disney's latest film, Mona, is a celebration of Polynesian culture that, by all appearances, is aiming to be mindful and diverse. Sadly, it doesn't look like the Halloween costume department got the memo. And Matt, you ought to, if you can, look it up online real quick. Disney has released its line of clothing, toys, and accessories for Mona, and the company decided to make Maui's costume full-on brownface. Quotation marks on brownface. Uh, the full-body children's suit is designed to look just like the Polynesian demigod, voiced by Dwayne Johnson, including tattoos, grass skirt, and yes, brown skin. The costume looks great on the young male model because he has, and they have a picture of a young, um, oh, Mohana. Mohana. Sorry, Matt just corrected me. It's Mohana, and I was saying... Mohana. Mona. Mohana. Mohana. Hey, I'm sorry I don't come from your from your <laughs> island, Matthew. <laughs> But the kid who, who uh, due to his Shuba, color, his, okay. yeah, due to his color and his race, uh, the kid that's in the photograph, uh, he somewhat kind of matches the costume, like it goes well with him. So that's why this uh, the writer here says the costume looks great on the young male model because he has a similar complexion. But you can't escape the fact that a white boy or girl is going to be in brown face. Just because you don't darken the face itself doesn't mean it's not offensive and wrong. Speaking of which, what about the face? If the kid darkens their skin at all, to better match the costume, he would see an Obama brown face paint situation, which only makes a bad situation worse. And the article goes on from there. Again, io9.gizmodo.com. Disney does brownface in Moana. Moana. Costume misfire. There you go, Matt. Before I turn it over to you, Matt, because I know you have some things to say about this. It, it seems like when I was a kid, mid-early 90s, when around the time when Aladdin came out, they released Aladdin costumes. And I remember everybody was wearing the Aladdin costumes. And yes, I understand that the character, the cartoon of Aladdin, was more white uh, than than I, I think anything else. But I've seen people of all different races and all different colors wearing that costume. Uh, Matt mentioned a Jasmine costume. I remember when that Jasmine costume came out around the same time. Same thing there. It had the skin. Uh, it was the full-on uh, full get-up. And the reason why I don't think it really bothered anybody, and actually it probably didn't bother anybody or offend anybody, was because it's a movie that everybody loved. It was a character that was easily uh, identifiable to people of all races. So I can understand where this person is coming from when it comes to this Maui costume from this Disney movie. But it's still a Disney character, and the whole idea of these Disney characters is that they do promote, and what they're trying to do with, I guess, the later, the more recent Disney characters, is that they're trying to promote diversity with their characters. But in the way, I would think that people would also want everybody to look towards that character and want to become that character. If a child is wearing a costume inspired by a Hawaiian Disney character... I, I really don't see too much of a problem there, unless if it was used in a very bad, raunchy sort of way, you know. Matt, what do you think about that? Okay, so let me say here that this person is saying here, it says here at the end of the article, that's not to say Disney shouldn't make a Maui costume at all, but it could be more respectful to make a costume overlay that puts tattoos on the child's own skin color, and they wear a t-shirt and leggings to match. Um... And then it says, however, that would not address a larger cultural appropriation issue that's been brought up by some critics. Okay. 
So at least they did offer something in the way of some kind of an alternative to this, but even then, that's kind of retarded. Um, and oh, I used the word retarded. Well, you know what? Fine. Mentally challenged, whatever you want to say. Um, here's the thing. When it comes to kids' playthings, you, everyone knows who has half a fucking brain that racism is taught. Okay? Racism is taught. When you see a child emulating a, uh, a Pacific Islander's demigod, who's actually comparable to Hercules, and, it, and some would argue the actual inspiration for Hercules, depending on how you want to look at, you know, cultural histories in that time, in that time frame, that's not racism. And it's absolutely, completely mind-boggling that you would accuse children of racism because they want to emulate a positive male character who, who actually is a Pacific Islander, who is Hawaiian. How the fuck is somebody going to have a problem with that? That pisses me off to no end. You are teaching them that, instead of teaching them diversity and inclusiveness and trying to actually emulate something that's good, you're teaching them to be afraid to do anything that could be remotely construed by somebody else who is not a child as racist. Well, now, how does that, how does that promote inclusivity? How does that promote diversity? All that does is promote fear and fear-mongering. Which, in turn, ironically, can promote racism. So what the actual fuck, people? This shit pisses me off, fucking Beth. And she's white! Or she sure as shit looks white. So what the fuck? I mean, this really fucking pisses me off. This in no way, shape, or form is meant in any way to be disrespectful or to take cultural appropriation. It's actually providing a way for kids to actually emulate something positive from that culture. It's not to steal the culture. It's not to make them become white Hawaiians or anything. It's to make them want to be more like a Hawaiian. And yes, while it is a demigod from a Walt Disney cartoon, it's still something that can spark an imagination, that can get them interested in that culture, that can get them wanting to learn more, that can get them to understand where their culture is from. And by God, get them to go and see and get them to understand and learn. But, oh, no, I can't wear an outfit. Fuck you. Nobody's putting on actual brown face. Nobody's painting a face. No one is culturally appropriating anything. And no one is sure as shit going to put shit on a kid's face and then sit there and try and make that to be out the same, make that to be the same thing. That's not what's happening here at all. And I just, oh, it makes me so mad. It makes me so incredibly mad. We can't tell. It just, I, I understand that we don't want to, um, that you wouldn't want to actually do Al Jolson blackface, or you wouldn't want to do some kind of literal brownface that is intentionally going out of its way to make fun of a stereotype or to uh, engender hatred or cultural misappropriation, as it were. That's not what's happening here. This is a kid wearing a costume. Well, part of the costume is you need to look like the character you're, you're, you're costuming as. And no one is saying, put blackface on the kid. Or brown face, or any other kind of face. They're just saying, hey, if you want to wear a costume, here. 
you know. So, I mean, you, you know, yes, let's teach them fear instead of understanding and diversity and inclusivity. Yes. Good job, Beth. Way to fucking go. And that's my news. <laughs> okay. Uh, slide over this uh, soapbox here. Slide the soapbox out of the way. Deep breaths. Relax. <sighs> take right. take a handful of Vicodin. That's right. Here we go. Some Xanax. Time to go. All right. Well, We're that Xanax. definitely concludes. <laughs> that concludes the news faux show and brings us to did it age well did and this time oh yeah so did it age well did it age well it is this movie worth watching again cause it's older than sin did it age well did it age well I can't think of anything else to sing Hey, look, we have a new, we have another, uh... We, no, we don't. That that didn't work. No? No, okay. no but well. we should work on it, and <laughs> and maybe it could work, but that was bad. Oh, well, well, we can come back in 20 years and see if this segment intro aged well. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, so speaking of 20 years, because this was actually, uh, this, this one is actually uh, 17 years, technically speaking. Um... Because this movie, Blair Witch Project, that's the movie we're checking out to see if it aged well. Um, it is a 1999 American found footage psychological horror film. And it uh, starts, it is directed by Daniel uh, Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez. It stars Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. Now, this film, as we noted, is actually 17 years old. It is not 20 years old, which is our normal rule. But because we were actually looking at the, we're actually watching Blair Witch for the show, we thought, hey, let's see if the actual movie that started it all aged well going into it. So we made an exception this time. All right. Now, this movie, um, sets up a fictional backstory um, about the curse of the Blair Witch. And um, there's these kids, and it's basically these three college students who are going out to film their own documentary in which they are finding out whether or not the legend of the Blair Witch is true. And they go off in search of the Blair Witch itself um, in the, woods in new england whereupon of course disaster strikes in the form of the blair witch right all right so um i i think it's fair to say that a movie with a budget of sixty thousand dollars that ultimately brought in a box office of 248.6 million um and was the talk of the town for months and months and months you could argue was a success and I think it's also a good, I think it's also fair to say that the, the movie itself more or less kind of launched the found footage genre. Yes, it's not the definitive end all be all beginning. It is not the genesis, but I think it's fair to say that prior to 1999's The Blair Witch Project, um, it was, um, definitely a very small subset of a genre. And now, uh, and then because of this movie, it entered the four as a true genre of film. Uh, and to that end, 
I would have to say, personally, that for me, the movie remains important. As when we go back and watch the and when you go back and watch the film, it definitely does set up a lot of the tenets that you see, good and bad, in found footage films today. Um, you have both the advent of shaky cam, you know, shaky cam jump scare. Um, and yet you also have the, in what I was, what I was calling the pre-show kind of your intentionally professionally set up amateur shooting style, which means that it's meant to look amateur, but it's done in a professional way so that yes, it's got an amateur's feel to it, but it doesn't make a lot of mistakes that amateur, that amateurs might. Especially when you consider this is something that's supposed to be designed as kind of like a college project. Um, and yet, even though that is the case, there are still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of kind of amateurish issues with the film. And a lot of these, and a lot of this was looked over at the time because it was so groundbreaking. Um, and a lot of that, a lot of that stuff has to do with the basic cinematography setup and a lot of the writing. Not the characters, I think, were as good as they could be given the actors and the limited experience that they'd had going in. Um, also, if you look at the way that the footage is shot, because again, it's literally, oh, this was cobbled together. This footage was cobbled together that was found in the woods, right? That's the whole preface of this, of the Blair Witch Project. Um, and so you can even tell because of the way the movie was shot, like when you went and saw this in the movie theater, and of course you'll notice aspect ratios when you watch it at home, it doesn't fill up the screen. And I remember being kind of irritated by this when I went and saw it in the movie theater. I'm like, why is there only like, why is this four, three ratio? I don't know. It's like watching this at home on a TV because it was literally just a square in the middle of the screen. And then I was like, Oh, huh, I get it now. So it's got certain aspects of it, but even then that kind of a scope limits the ability of the cinematography to be able to tell the story and it puts everything onto the actual camera work. Um, the director then doesn't have as much flexibility and freedom in establishing shots for the actors to act in front of. And when you have writing issues that you have, for example, um, even basic survival skills will tell you to follow downstream uh, as best as possible any moving water. And these kids come across the river two or three times, and then the one goes, I threw away the map. I threw it away. You know, because he's like going crazy and all that kind of shit, right? Um, it just starts, the weak writing sets up very, a whole bunch of logical fallacies in the film. I, you can call them plot holes if you want, but they're really more plot devices to keep it moving forward. And yet, there are a lot of really interesting things that the movie does in terms of creating an environment that can be scary. Um, uh, and a lot of it got made fun of in like the scary movie stuff and everything, you know, with the girl when she's crying and the snots all running down her face and everything. Um, but at the same time, that was kind of a cool characterization development because you're, you, I mean, you're literally seeing just pure terror. And it, and that exudes into you as an audience member. So, again, there are a lot of things that the movie does well um, that establish a lot of really cool things that you can find in good found footage movies 
uh, in popular found footage movies since then. So I think it's an important movie, and I think it's worth going back and seeing the genesis of a lot of really good ideas. I think it's a good idea, uh, and I think it's important in terms of being able to establish what we know to be found footage as we see it today. And that has been replicated in other uh, VHS films, which, of course, the directors of Blair Witch 2016 um, were in VHS 2, I think they were the directors of, or was it VHS? I can't. Um, but it, at any rate, and they used found footage in that as well. Um, you have movies like Cloverfield Carnival and what have you. Unfortunately, though, and it has nothing to do with fashion. It has nothing to do with style per se. But I just think that because of those writing issues, because of that limited cinematography, because of the things that they tried to make look amateur, but in a professional way that didn't quite pull off, it just doesn't hold up. And so I maintain that while the movie itself is important to be able to review and view and and view for its um, for the things that it did right, overall, no. The Blair Witch Project has not aged well. Take it away, Tim. Yeah, I think with me, I thought I think technically the movie is great, but my problem lies in the storytelling and the the real the uh, the story of the Blair Witch and really what progresses the story along, especially when we end or when our characters get more towards the end. But what I loved about this movie. And I haven't seen it since uh, 2001, maybe 2000, whenever it first came on Showtime. So I remember watching it, and it creeped me out then, and I never really watched it since then, because I've read articles or in, and talked to friends and whatnot who've gone back and rewatched it, and they've had nothing but bad things to say about it. And I proceeded with caution when I decided, when I pressed play to watch this movie, and by the end of it, I was I was impressed. Still very impressed. I like the idea that the three actors are the ones who shot the movie. The directors gave them clues as to what they should be doing, like gave them prompts, but they all kind of stayed away. And they are the ones that created the scares, the frights. So the actors themselves, they would look at, I don't know if it was like coordinates or just a map that was drawn out, but the actors would take the cameras, follow the map, and improvise in going off these different props that the directors would leave them every day. And that is how the characters were virtually created. And they had free reign to do that because they were all trained in improv in New York, I think. I think that's where they're all from, is New York. In fact, I was reading somewhere that the directors interviewed, uh, I'm going to say thousands, but watch it be like 300 people, and basically, they said it was going to be an improvised film that takes place in the woods. And so the people would come in, and they, there was no script for them to read, or they didn't have any script or dialogue for them to read. They just gave them a prompt. They said, okay, well, I'm going to tell you something, and I want you, as that character, respond in a monologue as how that character would respond. And so that's how these people were, uh, were were cast. And on top of that, they also needed to know how to work a camera. And it worked. So the people, the characters that they created, 
despite using their same names, were pretty much how these people would have reacted if it was actually happening to them. Because they were actually getting scared. The director and everybody else in the crew, they would be the Blair Witch at night, or whoever it was that was attacking them. They would be the people that would like fuck around with their tents and do things like that. So it was a very unique and inventive way to make a movie, and I think it shows everything from the character progression, the story progression especially, all the way to the use of the camera. But what I think really makes this movie stand out, and what really helps the movie especially, is that they actually, the director and the editor, which I think were were the directors, they actually knew when and where to cut the film to progress or cut the scene to progress the momentum so that nothing lingers or carry for too long, which to me really helps make the movie overall work because it's fun. It's exciting. You really don't have enough time to sit there and analyze how, how corny their acting is or if their decision really doesn't make a whole lot of sense or not because they just kind of move along and it's cut like a student would cut a film like this trying to make it entertaining and trying to make it kind of like a Sunday night episode of Unsolved Mysteries or something like that especially with the character of Heather her really goofy overly pretentious narration she does as they're shooting content. However, though I do pride the movie on its cutting and knowing where to edit, there are many cuts in this film that are quick and a little too jumpy, which creates this disorienting feeling because maybe they were, to me at least, maybe they were struggling to find a way to coherently piece the horror elements together in the movie. So they had to create a way to jump to the next thing without organically building the horror element. So all of a sudden they'd be running and the camera shuts off for some reason, or they turn the camera off and they turn the camera back on. And at the very end, they somehow they stumble into the house and they make a split decision to run into the house and all that stuff takes place. And it all happens incredibly fast. And we'll, I know we'll talk about this with uh, Blair Witch 2016, but the original movie that I kind of wanted to see more of what the last act of the new Blair Witch had, which it took time to build the terror at the end. Even though it was the best part of the movie, it was still a good part. Again, I was that's for uh, Blair Witch 2016. But I wanted to see more. kind of gets old hearing these people scream and yell at each other and talk about the Blair Witch lore and all that stuff and seeing rocks and seeing dolls made out of twigs and twine. You know, you just wanted to see a little bit more, not necessarily see any monsters or see the witch or something like that, but like see eyes or see a hand or see just something like that. I understand how that could sound like a huge smack in the face of the film, But the great thing about not seeing the Blair Witch ever is that you have no idea what you are afraid of. So I really like the mood and the tone and the setting of this movie. It would have been a different movie if it took place during the summertime. There's just something about the coldness, all the dead leaves and the bare trees, and also the visible breath. And also, most of the animals that you would normally see, and insects that you would normally see creeping around the forest in the heat of summer, 
is not there when it's freezing cold out. They're hibernating. They're scurried away, tucked away somewhere, waiting out the cold. So if you hear something, it's either a bird or it's the Blair Witch. You know, so it kind of limits the things that you could be scared of. And it really, in your mind, makes you target the true horror of the film. But yeah, so I mean, I think I've pretty much covered all the basics there. I think it's a good film, and honestly, I think the Blair Witch Project aged well, because it's set out, it's like a documentary, a good documentary that you would have seen in the early 90s, or even in the 80s, any good documentary. doesn't matter how old, be due to the structure of the Blair Witch Project, due to its structure as if it was a documentary, it doesn't matter how old the film is, because how it was made and how it's presented, I think it is something that could be timeless and people could either look back and, and, and see the novelty of it or genuinely be terrified of. So that is why I think that the Blair Witch Project from 1999 did, in fact, age well. Well, right on. Okay. I, I think, honestly, that I don't know. I know we were starting to... <laughs> go back and forth on it but i think that we have definitely uh made a good case either way for why we um disagree on whether or not it's aged well so um i guess we're not gonna have to have a big old knockdown drag out like we thought we were oh damn it tim and your eloquence what the shit <laughs> <laughs> all right. covering all the bases <laughs> there you go okay so tim and i do remain divided but agree to disagree on it so of course again i say no tim says yes i'd love to hear your thoughts on it of course as well uh next week uh for episode when nandanan we will be doing a was it worthy segment and we're going to be covering actress marisa tomei's best supporting actress win at the 65 65th academy awards for my cousin Vinny from 1992 um we'll you know take a look there and discuss whether or not we think she was worthy of that win versus the other actresses who were nominated that year so stay tuned for that for next week and without further ado i believe it's time for the movies is it not sir let's hop on that movie train all right folks here we go it's the movies <laughs> Let's see. So, are we uh, gonna start with Blair Witch, or are we gonna end with Blair Witch? We have Blair Witch and Sully this week, guys. Uh, where do you want to? Where do you want to go there, Tim? Well, I think since Blair Witch will definitely have a spoiler section, why don't we just start off with Sully? Okay, fair enough. All right, so we'll come back to our discussion of Blair Witch Project and its subsequent spawn, Blair Witch, later. But for now, Sully. The 2016 American biographical drama film It's directed and co-produced by Clint Eastwood, and it stars Tom Hanks, Aaron Eckhart, and Laura Linney. Um, and, of course, this is um, going over the 2009 crash of Flight 1549 that was captained by Chelsea Sully Sullenberger and First, Offer, First Officer Jeffrey Skiles. That of that they then of course piloted and landed in the Hudson River, and no one 
died. That's literally unheard of. Now, um, okay, so what this movie basically is telling the story of, it's not, as much as it is kind of walking you through the moments of the flight, the all 208 seconds of it, it's really more about the actual NTSB investigation into it and the troubles that the NTSB was having with the data that they had from their investigation versus what Sully and Skiles were saying because, hey, we were there and this is, we know what happened because we were there. Um, and kind of the pressures that both an investigation of that nature would have as well as surviving something like that. And here, here's where I land on this movie. I think this is a just an absolutely amazingly well acted movie, and I don't mean just by the three primary characters you're giving you're, people are getting credit for. Um, I really and truly believe Mike O'Malley did an amazing job, um, and uh, I can't really say Anna Gunn. I just don't like Anna Gunn. I suppose I don't, you know, hate her or anything. <laughs> um, but also people uh, like Jamie Sheridan, who played Ben Edwards and stuff. Uh, you've got all of these great actors and actresses in the movie overall who are... Um, who really bring something to the movie that so that you can really be in the moment with Tom Hanks. And Aaron Eckhart as characters. Also, holy crap, Aaron Eckhart can still act. That's just great. After movies like I, Frankenstein keep coming up, I was starting to worry about him a little bit. So it was definitely nice to see him in this role. But um, the problems that I have with the movie, it, it's a very, very well-acted movie. And I think that in terms of helping you um, establish just exactly how scary it really was. I think Clint Eastwood just did a masterful job, but that's where it stops. And I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to. Um, this is quote unquote spoil it for you. This is a four point two five out of five movie, but the movie has two major flaws. One is the CGI, and I know we go back and forth on this whole thing: is CGI good, bad, whatever. I, you know what? Uh, let's just meet a little bit halfway for those of you who don't care. I think that if you notice CGI and it takes you out of the moment of the movie, it's bad CGI. Regardless of wh wh where you are on practical effects versus CGI, matte, CGI matte versus practical matte, whatever. And this movie has a, re has a lot of bad CGI. So I can certainly understand why they needed it, but I think with a movie of this caliber... Um, they should have spent more on it. Um, the other thing is, is that you have, um, several instances where they're not necessarily trying to show you the crash, um, or the forced water landing from so many different perspectives as it is just kind of helping you understand what, um, what happens when you relive something versus when somebody else relives something versus what, when they can literally prove what actually happened as it happened. The thing is though, is that it's truly, 
artificially um, it's it's artificially giving you a sense of terror or, or a sense of um, heightened thrill that starts to feel like a cheap trick when it's when it gets overused and it's for those two reasons that i can't give the movie five stars it doesn't even take it away a full star but it is enough to sit there and make you go there was a better way to do it and honestly i think it's because clint eastwood was playing to an older crowd um i know that my in-laws loved this movie um when i went and saw the movie uh there were no young folks in there uh I think I'm the only person who brought the average age down from 50. Um, and and that's fine. But at the same time, this is the kind of a caliber of a movie that you don't have to play those kinds of tricks with. So 4.25 out of 5. Highly recommend the film. But it's got a couple of glaring flaws that keep it from really being just absolutely amazing. Uh, great acting all the way around. 4.25. Take it away, Tim. It's a very safe movie, Sully is. Like, Rudy safe. (laughs) You can sit down and watch Rudy at any time, and regardless, you still like the movie. And you wouldn't mind watching it again on TNT with commercials, you know, another year later. It's just a safe movie, but it's a good movie. I mean, there's nothing glaringly wrong with it. And and on top of that, it's not as preachy as it definitely could have been, I thought, especially with, you know, making him out to be a hero and, 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 and especially the dramatic side and the inner struggle that Sully has is kind of dealing with during the movie. I give this movie four stars, but that is only because of the last act of the movie. I loved that so much. That kind of came out of nowhere. In fact, I didn't really know. Uh, I didn't really know how big of a deal this whole thing was. This whole scandal that apparently was a big scandal. I didn't realize how big it was and how in depth it had gotten. So it was just kind of an eye-opening experience seeing all this stuff play out in the courtroom as it did. And I was just absolutely fascinated by it. And so that is why I'm giving it a 4 and not a 3.5 or 3.75, is just because of the story and as well as Tom Hanks's performance. It's a great character for him, because you haven't seen him play anything like this in quite some time. It's very self-reflected, uh, a very self-reflective character, because of all the inner struggles he's having to deal with, whether... Did I do the right thing? Or did I put all these people's lives in jeopardy? Did I make the right call? Did I make the wrong call? Just all these questions are buzzing around as he's reliving that event. But just, again, my only critique, my only criticism is that the movie plays it safe and straightforward. And I think I kind of, I I would have liked to have had a little bit more meat. But it's still good. Four out of five for me. Very good. All right. Well, then that brings us all the way back to Blair Witch. 2016 American found footage psychological horror film directed this time by Adam Wingard and stars James Allen McCune, Callie Hernandez, Brandon Scott, Valerie Curry, Corbin Reed, and Wes Robinson. All right. Now, this film basically picks up um, more or less now. 
Um, and it has the brother of Heather Donahue from the first film, uh, James Donahue, played by James Allen McCune, who is basically assisting his uh, friend with a documentary film project uh, where he is going to go back to the woods where his sister disappeared and see if it's if it's possible that she's actually still out there somehow. Um, <clears throat> this time, instead of it just being three people, it's uh, four people. It's, a, um, it, it's uh, James, his friend, uh, who's doing the documentary stuff, and another, and and his friend from childhood, and uh, this this other guy's girlfriend. Now, they then have to meet up with some people who say they have some footage or whatever, uh, who then demand to go with them, and that's where we get our group of six. Now, from there, it's basically just a retread. And so I'm going to say, uh, and so uh, it's a retread, and it's a poor retread at that. Uh, this film comes in at two stars for me. And since we're going to have a spoiler section, I'll just say it's it, it's extremely poor editing choices. Um, it's... It's an overt attempt at jump scares where there are where where they're not necessary, and instead of learning from the instead of learning from the first film, they basically just really and truly tried to overdo it with a big budget. Um, and I say big budget because this one actually had five million behind it, whereas the other one had at best seven hundred thousand or so. Where did all that um, money go? Was it did it go to the drone that they used? Uh, yeah, I guess um, probably. It was actually, it was probably the tablet that they were using as the remote control camera for the drone. Um, and so, with and, and instead of stepping up the game uh, and bringing something new, like I said, it's just a tired retread. Uh, with terrible shaky cam, bad editing choices, and um, not really anything that's inventive, uh, especially for something that's trying to do what the first one did 17 years before. There are sparks of life in it, um, but just nothing that makes it worth really watching. So that's where it comes to two stars. I just simply did not like this movie. Um, and it's too bad because there were a couple of times when I thought yeah, um, it actually could have done something right. So two stars for me. I like this movie a little bit more than you, Matt. I was entertained by it. I It had my attention. I saw it a little bit later last night, as a matter of fact. Not a whole lot of people in the movie theater, but it was a big screen and the sound was up to snuff. I had a good experience, but it takes what the first, the original Blair Witch Project did right and throws it out the window for the most part. All of its nuances, all of its human characteristics and humanistic feeling, I guess, it, it's not there at all. In fact, you get a lot of stereotypical characters here and how they react in certain situations are very stereotypical as well. For me, the big issue, the main issue was the initial story, like what gets them there, what 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 
possesses the brother to go back and find his sister that's been missing for 20 years. And the very idea that Heather is still alive after 20 years is a little goofy for James, her brother, to hope for. (laughs) On top of all that, if you're trying to find your long-lost sister, wouldn't you be super serious about the situation and take more precaution, especially when you're choosing the type of friends that you're going to allow to go on this trip? He has this one male friend who isn't taking any of this seriously, and you know this right off the bat. And you just kind of wonder, like, if this means a lot to to Heather's brother, who he is trying to find a sister. He's true about this, wanting to figure out what happened to her. But he's willing to risk everything, including the idea, which he does say that there might be a witch there. You know, there could be something paranormal going on. But he's still willing to risk all of that with his friend who doesn't believe in all this, who's willing to laugh at everything, like laugh in people's faces who are honestly trying to tell him that real spooky things are happening in the woods. So the type of precautions that these people did not take, especially the lead character, the one who is the motivation behind the whole story, the reasoning is dumb. (laughs) The precaution is lacking. Other than stuff like that, other than the many quick cuts and the jump scares galore. I mean, they easily could have called this the jump scare project because the horror aspect to me really didn't kick in until the last act of the film, which is fine for the most part, but I hate it when random people, when people just randomly run into folk and it scares them and it scares you at the same time because the camera jolts and the camera makes this crackling sound. Or when somebody shows up out of nowhere, even though it's dead silent, and if somebody was coming out of the woods, I'm pretty sure you could hear, you know, like sticks and brush kind of moving around. And so you'd get an idea where people are around you if they are trying to sneak up on you or something like that. It just annoys me. Again, all the the horror aspect, the, the nuances that comes to crafting a good horror film is not there until, again, the last act of the film. But I don't want to spoil everything. I will stick with 3.25 out of 5. If you just want to go to be entertained and you like found footage movies and you really don't care about it being super respectful to the original Blair Witch Project, then I think you'll find some enjoyment out of it. The shaky cam really isn't that bad. It's just... I, I I like the professional attitude behind the the people the, the the three characters of the original Blair Witch Project, and that was all the professionalism to their characters are lacking in these characters. So three point two five out of five. That's all I'll say right now. Okay. Well, now we're into spoiler territory, I guess. Um, so if you want to skip it, skip it, and uh, <laughs> we'll see you next week. Um. All right. So basically. Like I said, there's just really not a lot redeeming to it. I mean, like I said, they did have really good ideas. I, I, I liked, um, I liked that they had double the amount of people because it allowed for a way to create more storytelling. But instead, all they did was just run the original. Again, they just run the original retread into the ground. Um, but instead of one person doing something off-putting, now it's two of them who then subsequently leave. 
Um, and then instead of one person getting hurt and taken away, now it's just two people getting hurt and taken away. So instead of one person left to try and figure out what the hell is going on, there's now two people left to fill. And so, again, they have all these different things that they do. Uh, for example, when they get to the actual house that, you know, you think, oh, great, now they're just going to run into the same thing. Well, no, they actually took some time, uh, took about seven minutes or so instead of the last, you know, minute, 40 seconds of Blair Witch Project. They took a good seven, eight minutes and run through the house. Well, you had again you have so much more you can do with this house and yet it's really spent just trying to create a retread of um an expanded retread of the original by looping from the beginning of the movie so they don't even do anything in terms of really exploring it also um you just just editing choices all the shaky cam aside god the shaking cam was retarded because we've 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 done better since then, and it was very purposeful, like what yes. they were trying to do. Yeah, and it was very very purposeful um, in terms of the shaky cam. Instead of from where they were trying to make it more, where they did, I think, truly make it more organic in Blair Witch Project. This was definitely a complete editing choice, and also the way that they chose to follow certain people, and instead of just cutting to it, make it look like the video goes out and then the video comes back on again for the next. I mean, it's like guys. Just tell one cohesive story. You know, it, it, you can you can let that actually happen through narrative flow. You don't have to do it uh, that way. But no, they're trying to deliberately make you think that, oh, this is once again the found footage. And this is how we found it. Oh, come on, man. You, you, we did that once before. Do something new. You could have literally let half of the movie be in the house. You know? If you really want to expand on it, why don't you have four out of the six, or even five out of the six, make it to the house, and then explore the house, and watch it, and watch it truly affect and change everyone in the house. Um, you know, it's it's things like that. They have some good ideas that they just don't ever execute on. Um, and what little they do execute on is really just a sorry retread of the original. I just, um, you know, like I said, glimmers of hope, but bad editing choices, too much shaky cam, and retread of the original. And that's why I just, that's why I don't like it. What was up with the girl's foot? She hurt her foot. A red herring. It's just a red herring. It's just meant to be something to, like, when they would find the bundles of teeth and and random shit in the bundles in the first movie. It, it's that. Again. But but the problem with this is that it, they used like they use special effects, you know, and and that's right. what really took me out of it is that what is is this going to be like is the witch going to come out of her foot? Like I really don't understand. Like nothing nothing really happened out of that other than she like pulled something out of her out of her leg or out of her foot or whatever. You have no idea what it is, and then she decides to go climb a tree for some stupid reason. The character thoughts is what gets me. It just, to me, it felt like there was always a director there coaching them and telling them what to do and how to do this. And there wasn't really anything organically happening. But there was one aspect of the movie that I thought was novel, but again, it doesn't really amount to anything. And that was, I think, probably, well, I mean, it's really not that big of a spoiler, but it had potential to be a huge spoiler. The whole idea that time stops 
when you're in the clutches of the Blair Witch. And they play around with that, especially when they get into the house and they see the character Lane there that's been there for however many years and he's under the power of the Blair Witch. I, I think if anything, like if they were going to go down that path, they should have introduced, reintroduced the Heather character in some way. And that's what I was hoping for. And that's really what I was hoping that they would go in that direction. And really nothing came out of that too much other than, of course, the obligatory everybody dies at the end. You know, I agree again. And like I said, especially when they got into the house, they had so much more opportunity to do some things, but they didn't have enough people to do them with. And so, sure, it makes sense. Although, I mean, I will say like um, when the uh, when what's her face broke the stick and then the chick broke in half, you know, that was cool. I mean, there were things like that that they, you know, that could have been done further along or been done in a better way going forward. But um and and I too, by the way, saw it. It was me and like two other people in the in a medium size in the on the medium size screen uh, in the theater, and the sound was definitely there. So, what did your other two people think of it? They were just as quiet as me. Nobody was screaming. No, you know, they just kind of got up and walked out after it was over. <laughs> and, and they didn't speak to you because you made them go to the movie. That's right. What I mean, like some of the things that got me with the original were the characters and with all of them screaming at each other. And it really kind of bugged me because instead of being proactive and trying to find a way out, they all just kind of gave up after a while. And this is the original movie, but it didn't I, I didn't hate it because to me, I looked at it as a true human response to the situation, because at some point you have to give up. It's just those characters kind of get so a couple of the characters gave up. A little too quickly. But then you go and look at this movie, and the characters annoyed the shit out of me because it was forced annoyance. And it was just some of the stupidest choices and mistakes. Like I said, like the girl who decided to go climb a tree, you know, and the the best friend, the, the other guy's best friend, you know, just the stuff you would be laughing at when... You know, you're around these, like, Satanists, and if they're telling you a serious story about a cult and or an evil witch or something like that, maybe you shouldn't just laugh in their face or pester them into admitting that they're telling lies or anything like that. You know, so it's just like a lot of annoyances, a lot of character annoyances that just don't work because they're not like the real human motions that uh, the characters went through in the first movie. So... I guess that's pretty much it on my end. I don't know. Was there anything else that bugged you anymore? Not really. I mean, you mentioned like uh, his friend who's not taking it seriously and stuff like that. And um, I agree with that. Yeah. It was just, again, it it basically boils down to the same thing. Uh, Bad decisions and a poor retread. So, all right. Well, I think we have definitely Blair Witched this one to death. So next week's movies are going to be The Magnificent Seven, the of course the remake here that's coming out, and the movie 31, which is available on VOD. So uh, I believe that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on. All 
right, well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Aaron Eckhart, I get to say this. It seems to me if you want something bad enough, whether you're a man or a woman, you'll do whatever you have to do to get it. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll blare with you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening.